What's up? It's Luke. I'm podding. I'm casting. I'm casting out to the universe. What's going on? It's good to see you again through the waveforms. I'm back with another episode, number six. We just keep smashing them out and we won't stop. This week, Ange Lavoie Pierre, whose name I can now pronounce perfectly with no outside help. Ange is a comedian and a journalist for the ABC. Very funny, very insightful. Very friendly. We had a great chat about her career in comedy, different aspects of journalism in the media, some random shit like crazy documentaries, and sort of talked about her upcoming shows and what she's got going on. So I thought it was a great chat, and I hope you do too. Here is Ange Lavoie-Pierre. Ange, thanks so much for joining me. My absolute pleasure. So before we start, I actually wanted to get maybe a crash course in how to pronounce your last name. <laughs> um, so I've had some trouble. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Can Why don't you you tell me what okay. you think it is okay. and then I'll tell you <laughs> so where you're going wrong. <laughs> for some reason, I had it in my head. That it was Lapiover, which I know is very, <laughs> is definitely wrong. So that's the first like mistake. Um, and then I watched a YouTube video of you uh, doing your bit about Duolingo. Oh yeah. And then the guy introduced you as Lapierre. Yeah, that's Sam Sam Taunton. Yeah. Okay. He, I know that video. Yeah. He. Yeah. He. He fucked it. <laughs> oh. Okay. Yeah. I, I figured. I figured. And I bless him. Bless him. Yeah. <laughs> like it's one of those moments where you're like, well, I, I'm probably not going to address it, but yeah, did, did yeah, it throw yeah. you off when that happened? Uh, no, because it's been happening for like 33 years. So wow. Okay. Um, yeah. So I'm and like I, I grew up in country New South Wales, mm-hmm. uh, and they just gave the hell up in Forbes. They were like they used to call us um, the the alphabets, which was like a, okay. a, a fun joke about how we've got like all the letters of the alphabet and the name, um, or the lovers. Yes, nice. The lovers. The lovers. Uh, and in Bathurst, they crunched it down to the LPs. Um, <laughs> Even though it is one word, uh, so oh, wow. you know they um, really didn't want to say it. They didn't want to say it because it is French, and yeah. you know I can understand that. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's Lavoie Pierre. Ah, yeah. the Lavoie, Lavoie in, in the yeah. middle part. I, okay, I was gonna say Lavio Pierre. Yeah, that's like no, a, no, no, no Lavoie Pierre, which version. means the site of Peter, which is quite a rare French name. It's like a very religious, very old fashioned. French name. Like they don't make them like uh-huh. that anymore. No, not at all. Yeah, no. Nah. <laughs> and it's like, it's one of those really nice rare ones that when you hear it, like you got to study it a bit, but then once you say it, you're like, yeah, this is awesome. Yeah. 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 It's Love the reason yeah. I have a career. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> How long is this gimmick going to last? I don't know, man. Hopefully at least a couple more decades, like long enough for me to, you know, get some savings and, uh, you know, move to a, uh, cheap part of Europe or something. I don't yeah, know. yeah. That's, a, that's a great plan. But then once you get to that, that part of Europe, then it'll be a commonplace name, right? So Yeah, I can just maybe. blend into the yeah. background. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the perfect. Way, the way I've always <laughs> wanted to. They won't, I'm sure the, yeah, the Greeks won't mind about Lavoie Pierres. They'll just... No, not yeah. at all. 
I love your retirement plan. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> financial advice from I'm, Andrew. <laughs> I'm improvising it. Yeah. I'm not giving up financially. <laughs> I have no money. I don't have any money. <laughs> nice one. Um, so maybe we could talk a little bit about how you initially got into comedy. Mm. So I remember, uh, I think I met you when I was doing sound for Sydney Comedy Fest oh, three or four years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, about right. Yeah. And I remember thinking you were very funny. Oh, great. And it was a really great show. (laughs) It was one of those awesome shows where, as a soundie, all I had to really do was just plug in the mic and just enjoy. Oh, yeah. Um, And That's unusual. Normally, I like, uh, I give, I've got like these tech heavy, very complicated shows. Oh, did I have a little remote control and I was doing it myself? You Is may, oh, I think maybe there was a couple of samples I had to launch, but it was pretty, it was pretty straightforward that's from what cool. I remember. Yeah. That's cool yeah. and chill of me. Yeah. And not yeah. at all typical. Lucky you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. so that's not the, not the No, no. I've now got, I've got these overly complicated shows now uh, with, yeah, with heaps of, heaps of cues. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, I started in comedy because I was asked to play the cello with Bear Pack, who are an mm. improv duo. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carlo Ricci and Steen Raskopoulos. And I was like dating a comedian at the time and I knew lots of comedians, but I was like, you know, they're like, you tell yourself weird little stories like, oh, I've got stage fright, which yep. is absurd because, you know, I'd been, I was reading, I think I was reading news at Triple J at the time or at least working on hack. And so, you know, I like clearly not shy mm-hmm. of a microphone, but something about being on stage is different. I was like, oh no, I could never, ever, ever do it. Yep. And then they were like, oh, just come and play the cello with us. And I was thinking, sure, this will be like some, tin pot thing like I'm sure these guys are like reasonable improvisers like bless bless their hearts for trying sort of thing mm. uh and I showed up and the first gig was like in the Seymour Center like hundreds and hundreds of wow. people and just okay. packed and it, it was and it turns out like they're quite a big deal and yes. they are really 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 good at what they do like mm-hmm. you know maybe the the best in Australia and uh and I yeah would make up an hour's worth of cello music to go with whatever they're doing. In fact, I've been doing it ever since then. It's like Mm. nine years I've been working with those guys now. But as a result of playing with them, I ended up touring to all these places. Like I started doing Melbourne Comedy Festival and I started doing Edinburgh Fringe Festival, Mm. like before I'd even stood up on stage and held a microphone myself. And Mm. so I was exposed to all this comedy. And then you sort of, when you're around it, you just start, when when you're around anything, and I think stand-up in comedy is probably no different, you, you kind of start to put yourself in that position and go, oh, could I do that? And then the cadence and like the beats and the patterns mm. of it are already kind of there in your brain. Yep. And so I just was on a particularly slow story at one point at the ABC and uh, felt like just had this extra room in my brain and I started writing out jokes. And cool. then eventually I was like, well, what I'm, why am I doing this if I don't say them on stage? And sure. so I, I did. Yeah, nice one. Yeah, yeah that's it's kind of interesting when – I've sort of noticed that phenomenon as well. You're sort of around comedians a lot or just funny people and things just start coming to you in your downtime. And you Yeah, know, it's just, a trap. You're like, <laughs> I could be funny. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> and then it turns out yeah. it's really hard and it was so yes. much harder than I thought it would be. Right, right, for yeah. sure. Yeah, and I, I, I've discovered that as well. Like, And I think a lot of people have this experience of, oh, I'm funny around my friends or like, you know, I can, I can crack jokes, you know, mm. in the moment, but when I actually have to commit and write something and then go on stage and be like, hey, guys, this is the best that I could come up with. Yeah. And I think that this is awesome. Like, that's really hard. It's kind of like the whole thing is an awful, awful trap. Like, particularly in Australia where we have, um, you know, we don't culturally take super kindly to people 
who stand up and be like, I'm the best at this thing. Like Americans really reward that yes. outlook and that mindset. Mm. Whereas in Australia, and I think to an extent in the UK as well, which is kind of our closer cultural parent, we uh, really abhor that in people. We think it's kind of an ugly trait. Tall puppy syndrome. Yeah, mm. tall puppy syndrome, exactly. And uh, and so to stand up on stage, just by being there, like the act of doing it, you are saying, I think I'm funny yep. and I think I'm funnier than you. Yeah. And, I think, <laughs> and I think these things that I'm going to say are going to make you laugh. And so right. and expectation is the death of fun at the best of times. Like, you know, the party that everyone is really looking forward to, like New Year's Eve, it's why New Year's Eve always sucks because right. everyone's really looking forward to it and there's this countdown and like you can't have more pressure on a night. Like pressure mm. is the death of a good time. Yeah, um, sure. Like with, with sex, with parties, with uh, – and I think the same is true of comedy, which is why you kind of – need yeah you need you it you it's so hard mm. because you are setting there's a huge expectation that is on you mm. because you put it on you when For you stand sure. up in, in front of a crowd yeah and it's very kind of formulated and you know rehearsed behind the scenes and then the translation into actually doing that in front of an audience i find that you know a lot of comedians have sort of talked about this idea of you write something but then you don't actually know if it's funny before like until you talk to people about it or until you do it on stage. And I would argue you still don't know mm. if it's funny after you've done it on stage because you might say it just slightly wrong. Like mm. you might put the emphasis somewhere or your like vibe might be off that night. You're, you seem too cocky or you mm. seem not cocky enough. Like right. you seem like you're not backing yourself yep. or you rush it. I'm a big one for rushing. I just sort of like say the joke really fast and like kind of get through it because like I don't, you know, I don't really think that's funny or like I've lost mm. confidence between thinking of a joke and getting up on stage and saying it into a microphone. Yeah. And you just, you, you kill it before it's out your mouth. Absolutely. And yeah. There's something about that environment in which everyone, I feel like they have a heightened sense of being able to read someone's vibe on stage and read people's facial expressions. Like I've seen so much shitty open mic comedy where, you know, the, the person comes out and within like 10 seconds, the, the audience has decided that they don't like them. Yeah. And it's so brutal. Like, they're just trying their best, man. And it's like, they, they kind of have no chance after that in a way. Yeah, totally. Um, but I think, I think in the same way that like, if you're a, if you're anyone who has put themselves in the spotlight, even if it's in that small way, like at a, you know, a shitty open mic, um, you know, or if you're a journalist or if you're, a, you know, an artist, people attribute a great deal more confidence to you. Mm. Like people think that you are a lot more powerful than you are, just the very act of being on stage. And so all of a sudden you're fair game. And so you're a lot less forgiving. Uh, you're a lot less yeah. lenient on mm. someone who's um, in like, quote unquote, in public, even yes. in that really small way, you yep. kind of go like, well, you know, you thought you could yeah. do this. So, you know, you can take whatever my opinion make of you is. Make us laugh. Yeah, yeah. make us laugh. Yeah. Fuck it. Fuck it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's... Um, We're talking everyone out of it, by the way. I'm talking myself yeah, out of it. I'm never like, why, do would I do, why, why do I do comedy right before I go to Edinburgh? This is you know, yeah. not the conversation I need to be having. And do you, do you still have those feelings or has it changed? Uh, like, I feel like I have patches where I'm funny and then patches where I'm not funny. And I feel like I'm in an unfunny patch at the moment, right. it, like in a, in a stand-up sense. So I'm mm -hmm. just kind of like not not really gigging. Yeah. Um, but then some, like Edinburgh is good for it. Like mm. you go over to Edinburgh and you do a couple of gigs and you're like, yeah, this is great. I'm the 
I'm, I'm the, you never like, I'm the best. Right. Be like, I'm pretty good. Boost. I'm pretty yeah, good. I can do sure. this. Yeah. And then you, you know, you think you can do it and then you do it a bunch and, and that kind of confirms it and it's okay. And then, so yeah, I have like these, I go through, I definitely go through waves with it. Yeah. For sure. I th- and I know a lot of comics who are like that as well. They'll just be like, yeah, no, I can't kick at the moment. You know, I'm not, I'm not doing it. Sure. Yeah. It's interesting to be reliant on kind of the validation of the audience I, I wonder if you can actually do that in a healthy way because the way, the way that you just described it actually sounds pretty reasonable. You know, like you, you do need an understanding of does this work? You know, am I in my hot streak right now or am I kind of like not so hot? Um, but then I guess the stereotype is the depressed comedian who's always mm-hmm. on stage and, you know, they're like, they need that laughter because like maybe they have nothing else going on in their life or whatever it is. I actually think I'm not the type of person, like I don't have the personality that is really actually super well suited for it because I do uh, I do take back I take I take feedback on board mm-hmm. like I t- I you know of all kinds like I'm like oh well you didn't think I was funny or well, maybe it's not funny whereas mm. you should be a bit more robust you mm. should you should have your own internal engine for validation mm. um, because if you're overly in but this is in life in general not just mm. in um, in stand-up if, if if you are overly reliant on like other people's validation then you are constantly like on a on a cliff like the smallest thing not the smallest thing but like you know any like a breakup or like you know if you have a a, you know have a bad time at work like Mm -hmm. maybe you lose your job or your position or something something goes wrong um then you're kind of you're right on the edge like if you're You're putting your fate in someone else's hands yeah you're exactly you're like losing control over you've you've like you've ceded control over how you feel about yourself to the rest of the world and that's a very dangerous thing to do Mm. yeah absolutely um yeah i kind of think about stand-up um versus improv a lot and i've done a little bit of improv and i tend to prefer it um in a lot of ways and I kind of was thinking about it in pre- preparation for this chat. And I think a lot of it is because when I go on stage and improvise or even do like freestyle rap and stuff like that, there's a certain expectation that the audience has already that, oh, this guy's just making it yeah. up. So yeah, yeah. it's Anything okay you if do. he makes mistakes. <laughs> Anything you do is gold. Like, yeah. If you manage to rhyme, yeah. you're the king. Absolutely. Like, yeah. People yeah. go people go nuts for that stuff. And yeah. that's the same. Like it's that it's the thing we were saying about expectations, right? Like you've totally um, negated that whole problem of standing up and being like, well, this is the best I can do. Yeah. So, that's right. you know. You're, you're being held to a much lower – the audience is more lenient. Mm. The audience is going to be far more lenient if you're like, we're just making this up. Yeah. Um, and that's why I love improv. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, you know, to see amazing performers like the Bear Pack pull it off almost as if it was written, like that is just a skill that is, is so incredible to me. That's the problem we had in Scotland, actually, in, in Edinburgh the first uh, year or two that we went over, is that we'd come off stage and we'd speak to these – Scottish people afterwards and they'd be like, oh, that was great, but, like, tell me for real, like, how much of that was already written? We'd be like, no, mm. no, 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 like, none of it. Also, that's quite offensive. Like, we, <laughs> we take this quite seriously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, we genuinely uh, – we made it all up and they'd be like, sure you did, and then kind of wander off into the night. Like, really? They didn't yeah, believe you? Some people didn't believe us. Yeah, some people didn't believe us. What was the format of the show? It's, like, it's a, it's a style they call um, a yarn and it's just the yep. two of them – and they sit on stage with like two chairs mm-hmm. and they'll get a place 
you know, like a setting suggestion from the audience and they'll go from there. Like they won't leave stage, no planning. They just like launch into it. Hour long story. They'll each play like, I don't know, half a dozen main characters each. Mm -hmm. And then like a bunch more weird little minor characters that Mm -hmm. they'll like hop around and do. Um, I'm making them sound like, you know, tiny bunnies or something. (laughs) It's it's very serious. Um, But yeah, no, they, they will, yeah, go and do this sort of hour long story that will somehow make, sense it's often like around the hero's journey and so in that Mm -hmm. sense you know there is kind of there's a formula to it like you know it's not um Tolstoy every time like they're not you know uh reinventing the wheel or anything but it's pretty magic like it's I I I corpse all the time like I I sit on stage and I laugh and Mm. laugh and laugh and it's like a problem yeah absolutely yeah and to see like the the callbacks and stuff like that they do in these long form improv shows where everything just seems to kind of click together. Like, yeah, I, I can't get over it. It's, I love showing people it for the first time, especially mm. if they've only seen stand up before mm. and just getting that initial reaction and kind of like, yeah, I guess like the Scottish person being like, they, they almost can't believe it. Right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in terms of writing, um, I think with stand up. Yeah, it's, it, it is hard to materialize things that, you know, you think you can be proud of, or at least I, I, I struggle with that. Mm. Like, do you ever kind of get stuck in the creative process where, you know, you, you're really feeling like you have to force it? And let's say you have a deadline coming up of an hour that you have to prepare or something like that. Um, and you just, you're, maybe you're in a phase where you don't feel so funny. Is yeah. there a kind of, is there a way that you sort of try to force that into being, or is that not possible? I'm permanently stuck. Like stuck is my natural state Mm. Um, and deadlines are the only way I write anything, which is why I register shows for festivals and then I write for the festival. You got to do it. Yeah. And then I got to do it because I'm like incapable of cancelling. So yeah, that's how I do it. And my phone, like my notes section in my phone is just populated with everything funny that I like ever think of yeah and then sometimes like there's a separate there's a separate note section which is like ideas for a show yeah uh and then you know I when when it comes time I just like go into my phone notes what once I lost all my phone notes my phone died unexpectedly uh and that was fucking Armageddon like that was like three years worth of stuff that was just gone which was devastating but you know you kind of have to like I think this is for writers of all kinds um at all stages in their career, like there's always the fear that the last idea that you had is your good, like your last good idea. Mm-hmm. And you have to trust your brain to be kind of like a bottomless well of, of good ideas and just be like, no, 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 I'll have more. Um, but yeah, at the moment I'm supposed to be writing a show with uh, Jane Watt, who's like mm-hmm. an actor who I've worked with before. In fact, I think yeah, that, was that was the show that the yeah, show. that was right. a split bill. Yeah. Um, you, you saw me do my first show. You were you were there. Was that, the first yeah, one? that was my first one. Oh yeah. wow, amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so we're performing together for the first time since then, actually. Uh, wow. And we're doing a show which is going to be called Jazz versus a Bucket of Blood. Okay. Uh, at Sydney Fringe. Intriguing in, title. In September, yeah. and it's like it's basically that I want the. Sh- she wants the show to be about – she will want the show to be about jazz and I will want it to be about a bucket of blood and we're yes. going to uh, argue. Naturally. With, yeah, we're going to f- fight about that for a while. And, uh, wow, okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it's like a Billy Joel impression I want to do. It's going to be pretty, uh, yeah, character-driven and like weirdo 
weirdo comedy for sure. Nice. So is this a, an hour you're doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got to write. Yeah, I've got to write an hour. I, at the moment, it's like about 50 words in my notes section. So we'll see. But it's that deadline, right? It's the deadline. Yeah, yeah it's, it'll, it'll yeah. happen. It'll yeah. happen. And I'll have to, I'll, I think most of it will get written while I'm in Edinburgh. And mm-hmm. I'm, because there's all these funny little nights that you can go and do. Like there's oh, cool. this, uh, this really fun clown night that I did over there the last time I was over in 2019, which is called Wonder Jam. And it's just like 11 o'clock every night. Uh, you go down and maybe like during the day you've been to the op shops and there are so many op shops in Edinburgh and you've just bought like, you know, a few, the makings of like a few costumes. Mm-hmm. And you just go and like try out a few weird little characters nice. on stage. And it got this cult following. It was like people would kind of queue to be in this thing and there were, you know, six or eight of us who would perform in the night and that's probably where I'll write most of this show, I think. Really? Yeah, yeah. So it's more or less on the day or the few days before you, you're just gathering costumes and then you chuck it all together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you you know, that gives you ideas or yeah. whatever and uh, I think it's always easier with like another person on stage and Jane's mm. so funny. Yeah, like she's great. Yeah, I think that'll kind of... Uh, that'll help me along a bit, but half the time, like, cause I'm, I'm big on writing and planning stuff and Jane's this amazing improviser. So mm. I'll bring all mm. these, like what I think are really cool, funny ideas yep. and she'll go and do something off the cuff that is just so much funnier than anything yeah. I could have written. Um, and so, and that's how it'll, that's how it'll go. I'm trying to think of whether it would be easier to argue for a bucket of blood or for jazz. Yeah. Um, I think maybe you got the short <laughs> end of the stick. I don't know. And, which is funny because I wrote it, right? Um, <laughs> there you go. But yeah, I think like the characters that we naturally fall into is like jazz. Uh, jazz. Jane is like this, um, they're just like exaggerated versions of who we are, which is she's like this sweet, upbeat, um, relatively wholesome person with like a kind of um, nutty streak and um, who would just be like, and she's like, you know, she's, performs musical theater and stuff mm. like she she can carry the wholesome thing and be like jazz jazz is a beautiful art form yep. here is my <laughs> like sort of ted talk style and i'm like this depraved yeah um, <laughs> nonsense creature <laughs> who will be like no it's about a bucket of blood <laughs> and here's why but maybe not give any reasons like yeah, yeah. so nice. uh yeah i think i've deliberately given myself the short end of the straw because mm-hmm. the game is that i i think i need to fail yeah. Yeah. She probably needs to fail as well. Our, our, our comedy is basically about us failing and being gross. Nice. Yeah. I think that's a good strategy. You know, give yourself a really challenging thing to do on stage. And again, it's almost setting that expectation of like, this is already a ridiculous concept, right? Yeah. And so it's just kind of funny by default, right? Yeah. Where it's expectations management, I think, 101 is like, you, you know, really uh, signpost to people in the title what they are getting themselves for. Sure. In for. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm actually really excited about it. I was, you know, it, it was that or like come up with a, you know, sparkling hour of like wit and, you know, perfectly structured jokes. And I'd much rather go into bat for a bucket of blood yeah (laughs) (laughs) i never thought i'd hear anyone uh say that sentence but there you go (laughs) there it is you know it's so rare to be able to say a sentence that you're pretty sure hasn't been said elsewhere by anyone yeah and i reckon that that might be one going into bat for a bucket of blood yeah there's actually a subreddit called Brand New Sentence dedicated to that exact thing oh i love that Um, yeah please write it yeah yeah Uh, yeah, it's very good so yeah, whenever someone's in a thread and someone says something completely ridiculous, they'll screenshot it and put it on that subreddit. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a great concept. 
I'm uh, I'm spending more time on Reddit at the moment than I normally would because I'm making a new podcast for the ABC, which is about you know cultural trends and what drives them. Um, yeah, cool. So the, one of the episodes that we're working on is uh, as hope, hopefully we get this one happening. It's a little bit tenuous because, well, for reasons hopefully you'll understand in a moment. But it's about age regresses. What does that mean? It's I mean, there's a couple of kinds of age regression. There are some people who do it for like kink-related reasons, but the kind that we're interested in are people who are just kind of doing it for self-soothing reasons. But the basic concept is acting significantly younger than you are mm. as like a as a coping thing. And there's this subreddit that I've been spending a lot of time on uh, with r slash age regresses. And a lot of times it's like um, – people sometimes not even 18 themselves but the age that they regress to is like a pre-verbal age where they need to be uh cared for basically they want to like want to have kids food made for them they want to like use a a pacifier like a dummy um sometimes nappies and stuff involved and as you can Mm. imagine like Mm. the other so there's like twenty two thousand people or something on this subreddit and a lot of them are just you know genuine participants some people are like there as care- caregivers for, yep. for people who are age regressors. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is like a real heavy dose of perverts as well. Just people who are there to like look, slip into people's DMs and be like, hey, you know. But it's a it's a super interesting universe. Um, there yeah. are a few of those that I've slipped into. But, yeah, I'm kind of like uh, cruising cultures at the moment. Yeah. Um, Do you think subcultures. with the age regression thing, do you think that um, like what do you think is going on there psychologically? If you had to guess, you know, uh, to me it seems maybe there was you know not care given to them uh, at a young age or something along those lines. Possibly, although I mean, by that logic, if that wasn't like a say, like if you didn't have good memories of being that young, it's probably not a space that you would want to regress to. Mm, maybe I don't true. know, but I'm I don't I don't have a degree, and I'm sure there's a lot of um, really well researched scholarly writing on this um of which i'm you know i'm not aware uh but i think you know the kind of napkin maths on this is people are doing it because if you abdicate you know if you abdicate adulthood or the age that you are if that's approaching adulthood young adulthood then you are no longer responsible for all the things that happen Mm. to an adult Mm -hmm. or to a young adult whether that's like relationship stress or like bills or Mm -hmm. you know you just get to like fully not worry you get to like occupy the mind mind state of a literal toddler and that that i i can see the appeal frankly i can see like it's not something that i want to do but i kind of understand why people do it and i think there are other versions of that as well like i think part of what we want to do this episode about is like ASMR and uh, like sleep podcasts Mm. and um, basically these suite of tools, the suite of tools that has, um, that just keeps growing. Uh, I think we've seen it really explode in the last like five, 10 years, which is ways for adults to soothe themselves. Mm. Like the the things that we all, we all just want to be kind of tucked into bed in 2022 (laughs) by our our mummies and like, who can blame us? It's it's pretty cooked out there. So I kind of, I kind of get it, but we want to look at age regresses as the most pronounced iteration of that 
thing that I think a lot of people can relate to. Yeah, I think it's a really good idea to take a deep look at that. I mean, I think it's easy to judge something like that at first glance, um, but to figure out why people might be going about it um, and getting a deeper insight into their psyche, I think is a, a good idea. I mean, I guess I take the approach of, you know, as long as, th- as long as things are legal and consensual and all that sort of stuff, then sort of more power to you. But at the same time, I guess we want to make sure people are okay. So, you know, if there are, if there are people doing these things and, you know, maybe they're not healthy, but maybe they are healthy. I don't know. Well, this is the thing I think. Okay. So the first impulse you have to suppress that is like the childish impulse is to like, uh, you know, see it as a, like an, ob- see them as an object of ridicule. Be like, mm-hmm. oh, that's so stupid. Or like, that's so weird. Like, okay, f- like sure, but we're all weird and people are weird. And, and th- th- this community really, like it's a really supportive, beautiful community that you can s- see, yeah. which is often the case on Reddit. It's just kind of an, a nice space in a lot of ways, community ugly space as well. But, um, you know, people really asserting that it's a healthy way to cope. And I've done a little bit of reading like on, you know, what experts have to say about it. And, you know, I think the the school of thought from most professionals is, well, if if they're not hurting anyone and if, if it's not stopping them from kind of coping and participating in society, yep. then where's the harm, sure. you know? Yeah, I think if it gives them the outlet that they need and then they can continue on with a quote-unquote normal life, then I think that's a, a good outcome. But mm. maybe with some of these things, there's a, a fear that maybe someone will get stuck in that sort of lifestyle and not be able to function as an adult at the same time. Yeah. And I think, look, the other part of it is I think most patterns of behaviour, uh, uh, there are a lot of patterns of behaviour where they will become more accentuated in time. Like if you mm. do it and it's working, like addiction is yeah. is obvious is an obvious candidate. Um, any kind of like maladaptive sex stuff, you know, there's this old school like Freudian um, school of thought, which is, oh, you like catharsis, like quote unquote catharsis, like yeah. an ang- you know with anger or or sex or um, you know, if you do it, then you've, bam, you've got it out of your system. Mm-hmm. Like it was a splinter that you had to push out. Sure. But really the the best research on a lot of that stuff shows that when you do it, it just reinforces it. Mm. You're sort of like deepening those n- pathways in your yeah. mind. And y- not only do you then need to do it again, but you need to do a more extreme version of it. Mm. Um, but, I mean, I also, you know, ag- again, like I, I want to reiterate that I'm not an expert. Sure. Um, but that's kind of that that's the only real danger I can think of is that you yep. might end up tumbling down this rabbit hole and, and finding it difficult to function and participate in society. Yeah. I, I suppose like, you know, people finding that safe place is actually very important. You know, if there was if there was nothing like that and, you know, they really felt like they were a loner or an outcast, you know, maybe it would drive people to suicide and things like that right so yeah i mean yeah we we i think last after the last couple of years the 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 way that everyone thinks now is like hey man whatever you need to do yeah yeah (laughs) whatever gets you through the the (laughs) yeah the boundaries have been stretched a bit i think yeah Yeah, like yeah yeah, just do you that's okay and if you is if you use as a pacifier then then you is you that is fine for sure yeah i I, it kind of reminds me of this documentary bbc documentary uh fatties versus feeders i don't know if you've seen that one no it's um these 
like obese women um, who find these men online who are sort of a similar thing, like sort of becoming their caretaker. So a lot of them are like really, really big and they almost can't get out of bed. Mm-hmm. Um, and these men also have this fetish sort of thing where they love feeding these women. Is it a like? Is it a kink thing, or is it like something else? It se- it seems like there are sexual components to it, but it seems mostly about control mm. and mostly about like literally. Some of these guys are saying like, "I want you to become so fat that you can't move, and so that like I control everything that you do." Right. Um, and it's super messed up. You know, they'll be like feeding them like fat through like a drip, like just directly into their throat. Um, yeah, just it's, you should watch it. It's it's terrifying, but really interesting. The ethics of that documentary making are really interesting, right? Because mm. um, if you in, like if you give it a platform, and there's that's an ethical minefield in the first place because of you know I guess copycat theory, sure. which you know people have a range of opinions about whether that's a thing or not. But um, you could make that argument. But then there's also when you give people a platform, you incentivize their participation in it. Like if you if you sort of say, hey, we're doing this, we're doing this documentary, mm. um, and then they they end up doing it, it sort of affirms it for them and then they yeah. kind of so there's like a, a, a tacit approval process that goes yeah. on when you document something. Mm. Um and you know if you need proof of that, all you have to do is look at the kind of hard ethical lines that people have about um, covering white supremacy, for example, mm-hmm. like we don't give a platform to um, white supremacist views, at least not without you know a serious editorial mm-hmm. impetus impetus to do so, and you know some pretty robust editorial checks and balances there. For sure, and that's because you know platforming something is a it can can amount to tacit approval. Yeah, it's actually really interesting to get the journalist's perspective on that because I hadn't really considered that. Obviously, there's the risk of people copying behavior when they see it. But also, I think there's this risk of, like you said, you go to one of these either white supremacists or these feeder people or whatever, and maybe it reinf- <laughs> One isn't worse than the other, yes, we should say. Yes, <laughs> that is true. Yes, that, that's a good yeah. point. But, but yeah, go on. Uh, th- I guess the, the common denominator is, you know, these people in some ways they may feed off that attention, right? And so yeah. like, oh, the documentary being made about me and it almost doesn't matter the light that they're painted in at that point, right? Because they're kind of, well, at least to them because they sort of, yeah, they're just, they're, they feed off that attention in the first place, which is um, sometimes part of the documentary's theme itself. Yeah, and then, you know, there's usually, and this is what the audience doesn't see, but either explicit or implied undertakings given to people, to subjects of, of um, journalism, documentary especially, that, you know, they won't be – like no one agrees to go on a documentary where the, the person comes to them outright and says like, hey, we're going to like – we're basically going to call you out. We're going to show you in an unfavourable light. We're going to portray what you do as unhealthy, controlling and unethical in mm. general. Um, no one's going to agree to that. Sure. Yeah. So somewhere along the way, they have been given the impression, whether it was explicit or implied, that it was gonna that that there's something that that it's okay or at least neutral mm. what they're doing, mm-hmm. you know. And so then there's like the journalistic kind of decept 
the, the sort of deception that's required on the journalist's part um, and and if and if there's no deception if you're just sort of being like hey we're just you know if, if I mean tell me was the documentary was it approving or disapproving like what was the tone like it, what impression were you left with at the end definitely that these feeders were not good people um, but I don't think that that was a result of the direction or the production necessarily it was more the comments that people made throughout mm. and I understand that that can be edited in certain ways and all that stuff as well um, but yeah it was mostly the women talking about it and saying you know how their needs are being met by these guys but at the same time they kind of feel like they're being abused and they're sort of it's sort of this gaslighting situation where right. they're, they're not sure if these people actually care for them or or what and you know it kind of points to this deep insecurity that they have of, you know, no one wants me, like I'm unattractive. But then all of a sudden this guy literally thinks I'm the hottest girl in the world and wants to make, you know, um, photo albums of me naked and all this stuff, for, mm. you know, and like show, show me off kind of thing. Yeah, that's a pickle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> that's an understatement. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, highly recommend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need to watch that. Yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah, in terms of journalism as well, um, I was talking to Daniel about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, Daniel Scarrett, um, about media consumption and news consumption in general. Um, and he and I had a similar take in that we don't consume a lot of news on purpose and we try to avoid a lot of headlines and just keeping up to date generally. And initially I kind of felt guilty about that because there was some sort of motivation from people around me to be informed um but then i sort of got to a place where you know i realized that i couldn't do much about a lot of the things that are happening in the world and so i realized if i had this sense of anxiety as a result of that it actually makes me less able to affect the things that i can control yep um but i wonder how that works for you on a personal level given that you have to sort of do that for work all the time most journalists, whether they admit it or not, are um, idealists. Uh, except for the like true egomaniacs, most of us got into it out of a sense of civic duty. Like the world was not a good, perfect place or even necessarily a good place and that journalism was a kind of medicine for that. And it's why you see a lot of journalists leaving the profession pretty early um, and, you know, often you, you see you meet like really jaded, cynical journalists because there is a pretty low ceiling on the change that you can affect with journalism. It is – well, it feels that way at least. I think, you know, there is really wonderful change-making journalism that is done in Australia, like the best of it is really, you know, four corners at the ABC – uh, you know, agenda setting, policy changing program. But, you know, the vast majority of journalists, it's not that they're not contributing to democracy or, you know, the good things in the world, but the extent to which you contribute is very difficult to measure. And you might go your whole career and never be able to like point to one thing and have like this nugget that you can hold in your hand, this thing where you're like, I did that. I changed this. Like maybe you'll have like some small wins along the way, but, um, you know, it's very – like the, the path to dis disillusionment is a pretty short one. And so you have to have these other reasons 
to do it or like a very, very strong, unshakable belief in the, in the utility of journalism. Um, but I totally understand the impulse to not watch, to not listen, to look away. I actually think, I mean, I've, I've sort of done the same thing, but I, I'm, I've sort of stepped away from the newsroom lately and I'm, well, I'm, I'm making this culture podcast, which is a really nice change of pace because I don't have to like think about war or regional security or, or white supremacists uh, necessarily, although I, I'm trying to find a way to jimmy them into this new podcast. <laughs> uh yeah or COVID like I don't have to talk about any of those things and so like I I I do I get it but the irony is I think there's probably more in some ways there's more you can do not being a journalist than being a journalist um like I sort of want to stop I sort of wanted to stop you when you're like I realized that there were not not any things I could change it's again it comes down to expectations you just have to have realistic expectations about what what you can do in the world um and the problem is the 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 things that get talked about in the news they're often so large that it's impossible to see a way to change it but you can you can do a lot yeah i think um i think you're definitely right um i think a problem that i have is perhaps the rate of information and the variety of information it's like here's a million different problems and like they're all coming at you really quick um, where I think, you know, if I were to try to be as altruistic as possible and, and help as many people as I can in my lifetime, maybe it would be more effective for me to like pick one thing and get really good at it and try to help the world in that specific way. Be a Fred Hollows. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. It's like you find your thing, right? Yeah. And then, you know, I think that maybe you can make a, a fairly tangible difference that way. Um, but also another path to that, which I've been thinking about lately, is just making money and then putting it in the right places, right? Totally. So That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's this movement, um, Effective Altruism, which is mm -hmm. really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I've heard of it. Yeah. And um, they have a list of all these charities and they list them like dollar for dollar what's actually the most effective way to spend your money in terms of lives saved and those mm. sorts of outcomes. And I think the top one is malaria bed nets in Africa. Huh. So it costs like $2 or something to protect a bed um, from mosquitoes. And if you have a, like more than 50% in a certain village, then the population of mosquitoes kind of dies off because mm. um, the females don't reproduce. Huh. And so you can save so many lives. Um, whereas some charities, you know, because of their overhead costs or maybe they're just scams or whatever, like it just goes nowhere. So many charities are – okay, so here's the thing. I did like a, a bunch of reporting ages ago now, like probably a good seven years ago, but I did a bunch of reporting on like uh, essentially corruption in the in the not-for-profit sector, in the charity sector, mm -hmm. and they are just as likely to be corrupt as anyone else. Um, like there's nothing that differentiates those people by and large mm. um, from – in fact, if anything – because you know, entering into that sector seems to offer you this glow of altruism, like yeah. you seem like a good person. And so yeah. it's kind of perfect cover to be an asshole. Mm. Um, you know, and I think, you know, those people are just as likely, perhaps if not more so than to, because everyone has faith in charities. It's like, it's like, oh, anything yeah. for charity. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, you can kind of see where the, the cynicism comes from, <laughs> where I, how I kind of, you know, how my uh, idealism died. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, massively, massively corrupt, which is why, yeah, effective altruism is, is a really good 
initiative. Um, but yeah, a lot of a lot of charities uh, wa- waste massively. I did these stories about um, the RSL about um, financial misconduct in in the RSL, which was like that was kind of that was hugely disillusioning. Not just because it's like that that's like this sacred cow, right? That's like you know, not only are you going after charities, but you're going after veterans, yeah, like fucking veterans. For like, sure. um, and it's not, you know, mm. it's not by and large the the veterans who were, you know, um, I don't, you know what I mean? Like they weren't, it, it's not, it wasn't the individual members. It was like the management of the RSL. What was happening exactly? Um, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to defame anyone. I don't have my notes in front of me and it was, a, it was seven years ago, but basically there were, there were funds that were being misspent, like mm. funds that were, Particularly in New South in New South Wales RSL, although it, it was happening at branches all over the country yeah. that were being directed where they should have been going to you know save veterans' lives effectively you know veterans who were um, more you know more inclined towards suicidality because of their experiences in war um, and the funds were being used towards you know just banal stuff like you know house renovations or like a yeah. car or mobile phones or just like life stuff right. and what was really interesting something genuinely very interesting that i got out of this whole process was understanding the mindset of a corrupt person um because as with any you know quote unquote wrongdoer in society i think we tend to um otherize them and make them a monster and think oh you know, they're like this and like, you know, tar and feather them and I would never and you would never obviously, but they're awful. Um, it, it's a really, like a lot of the time it was a generation of veterans um, who came out of Vietnam, the Vietnam War and they were so poorly treated when they got home and they had their own challenges and there wasn't anywhere near the kind of level of support and understanding that there is um, for, for returning veterans now. Not mm-hmm. that it's amazing now but it was a lot worse for them then like that you know they they were met with protests when they you know when they got back from vietnam a lot of them um you know we've all heard kaysan uh and and so they kind of a lot of those men moved through their lives for decades with this chip on their shoulder um feeling that the world owed them something and in a sense it did and they you know accrued power um a small measure of power administering organizations such as the RSL. And it was kind of a, a pretty short walk from going, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll get what's owed to me. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this thing and, hey, I'm helping, but look, while I'm here, um, what's it, you know, if I spend a little bit of this money here. And it's not even that cerebral necessarily. Mm-hmm. It was so automatic. And I realized when I was like seeing these men – uh, really vehemently deny that they had done anything wrong by, you know, mis- misspending these, you know, mismanaging um, the RSL's finances, mm-hmm. sometimes for their own personal benefit. Uh, you know, they, they were so clear in saying, I have not done anything wrong. And I, this penny dropped and I was like, oh, they're not like strategically denying they this. They actually believe it. They believe yeah. it. They don't think they've done anything wrong. Yeah. Uh, and I spent many years as a court reporter and you kind of, you kind of see it in all, all kinds of like wrongdoing in the world, whether it's, you know, violent, violent acts or fraud or, you know, something as small as like speeding. Everyone has a rationale for the thing that they've done wrong. Nobody, mm-hmm. very few people, but, you know, pathological uh, psychopaths, right? Like clinical psychopaths actually go, oh, I've done something wrong and here's how I'm going to cover it up. 
most right. of the time, everyone is just like, no, I'm a good person. Yeah. You don't. I just made a little slip up. Yeah, I've made a slip up. Well, not yeah. even that. Just like, I'm misunderstood. Right. You don't understand yeah. me. Yeah. Um, and that's why, you know, we see ideological divides being as intractable as they are mm. because no one mm. is capable of thinking them, of themselves as a bad person because everyone has their reasons for doing what they do. They've, they've already, mm. they've, you know, constructed this filigreed rationale for mm. whatever it is they've done. And that goes back years, maybe all the way to childhood. And it's, you know, you, getting people to understand that is nigh on impossible. The mm. best way that I've seen... Uh, it happen is victim impact statements in court, and that's something that happens after, uh, uh, of, often in the sentencing process. So after someone has been um, convicted, and we've gone, oh right, tap tap. We technically think that you are guilty of this thing, whether it's like you know murder or assault or whatever it is. And then the victims, whether it's the direct victim or the families of victims, if the victims are no longer alive or able to speak, sit there in court and the and the. Uh, the guilty party has to sit and listen to the impact that their actions have had. And that is kind of, that's where you you see people kind of go like, oh, oh. But even then mm. it's not necessarily like I did something, like I'm a bad person. It's like I did the best I could and it had these unintended consequences, mm-hmm. which I regret. And that has made me reconsider how I will behave in the future. And I think that that is perhaps even the best possible outcome because I think that like you said some of these issues go so far back in people's psyche that I think trying to deconstruct things and get a better result than that is really really difficult well people just break down mm. like if they if you you almost don't want to convince people that they're a terrible person because you can't cope anymore like that's the dissolution of identity mm-hmm. it's like <laughs> for sure that's you have to keep people intact if they're going to get better i don't know yeah. i mean that's a that's a very off the cuff opinion i'm sure you could kick kick some holes in that but anyway it makes are. a lot of sense it actually i've been reading this book uh nonviolent communication um which has been really cool and it's it sounds a lot like what you just described in that um a lot of people make mistakes in communication inadvertently even um, by sort of attacking or blaming or saying you always act this way mm. or, you, know, or you, you never do this for you me. never do yeah. this. And Couples fights, yeah. For sure. And it's, you know, it's like these emotional reactions that you have. And, you know, when I say you never do this, like I'm saying that I have a need that isn't being met, mm. but I'm not saying it in a way that helps you understand what that need is or, or, or exactly like how my emotional landscape is at that moment. Yeah, um, you go into like panic mode. If someone says that to you, you like your brain goes into like panic stations, like goes to the ramparts, like war mode. Yeah. I have to defend my honor, defend my reputation. Yep. I must push back, push back against this immediately. Yep. Yeah. It's and it's it's such a hard reflex to get out of. You mm. know, like as as mindful as you can try and be when someone really picks apart something that you're really kind of vulnerable about or really sensitive about like it's impossible not to kind of lash out sometimes totally or you know if you're the kind of person who goes the other way as well like you can go inwards and say like yeah you're right like i suck you know i always fuck it up i always do something wrong like and Mm. both of those are really unhealthy yeah totally yeah i don't even sorry that's an excellent point i i feel like (laughs) yeah (laughs) i can do nothing but agree it was a nice little (laughs) tied it up Yeah. yeah um well on that um i do want to talk about your special so I've got 99 problems and here is an exhaustive, exhaustive list of oh, them. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, that, that old thing. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I think that that's 
done in Australia for now, right? But it's going overseas to Edinburgh? Yeah, I'm mm. thinking of maybe banging out one more show in Sydney, but TBC, um, but yeah, taking it to London and to Edinburgh. Nice, yeah. cool. And so give us a little backstory on kind of what the special entails apart from maybe like, yeah, I have some problems. Or maybe yeah, that's just it. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's definitely not that. It's kind of a bait and switch actually. Like I've, I've written a show that just sounds like people are going to walk in and get like a straight up and down Will Anderson, like funny, no, again, no, no shade at Will, um, like funny stand-up hour. Yep, like, yep. ah, yuck, here's like some, here's a list of problems right, that you right. might may or may not relate to. It's kind of not that. Mostly it's about um, being uh, followed by spiders and trying to work out why that is. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It was like the beginning of, beginning of <laughs> 20. It was the summer of 20, 2020, 2021, like that funny little fold over the year that we call summer. Uh, and I was living in this place that I just moved in with this uh, this guy, this, this boyfriend of mine. Uh, and it was this like really leafy backyard, like, you know, tr- tropical sort of Sydney backyard yep. and just overgrown as hell. And um, there were heaps of spiders in it. And so there was a degree to which I expected spiders to be in my life. And I was like, oh, yeah, that checks out. But I, like, found them in all kinds of places. Like, I was finding <laughs> them in, like, the fridge. I was finding them in my car. <laughs> I was finding – I found one in my hair. Like, I found them – I really did find you them everywhere. You very calm when talking about this. Well, it seems horrible. Yeah, it was awful. <laughs> yeah. It was awful. Um, and, <laughs> and then, you know, there was this one time that I – you know, he and I went back to Bathurst uh, – to visit my parents, that's where they live. And they've got like, you know, a couple of acres, like a little block. And there's this big dead tree in the backyard. And uh, this guy and my dad, they were sitting, we were sitting and we were like a few drinks deep and the sun was going down and 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 we were looking at the tree. And, um, and dad was like, oh yeah, no, I'd be meaning to chop it down. I just haven't got around to it yet. Uh, I've got to take care not to name this guy, but... Um, Let's call him Fred. Uh, I call him Fred in the show. I call him Fred for legal reasons in the show. So Fred for legal reasons uh, looks at the tree and looks at my dad uh, and goes, let's chop it down. Uh, Dad's like, what, now? He's like, yeah, now. And the light is fading and everyone's drunk. And somehow Fred for legal reasons, pretty persuasive guy, uh, like talked my dad into it. uh, And my dad had like – polio as a child in Africa and so he's like you know he limps like it's hard for him to get around but you know half cut you know limping like this walking wounded we sort of like staggered down there and the chainsaw is blunt like it's blunt as hell (laughs) and so mum and I are standing a safe distance back and I'm just filming the whole thing being like this is going to go terribly and the relationship was going pretty badly at that point so I was kind of like I want to see whatever whatever goes down (laughs) I want to see what this is what's going to happen next uh and so I'm filming and and Fred, for legal reasons, is like, you know, soaring away at this tree. And, the, and, and you know, he only gets halfway through because the chainsaw is that blunt. And there's like smoke coming out of the tree because it was it was actually – it had stopped cutting and it was just like rubbing the tree. So there's like smoke coming out. Uh, and, and you know, at first I thought he was stopping cutting because of that. But um, he didn't. He sort of like he – put, he put the chainsaw down on the ground and then he sort of starts to like jiggle all over and he sort of starts to slap himself and he sort of starts to wail. And so I zoom in. Uh, obviously, because I'm still <laughs> rolling on this whole thing. And so I zoom in and that's when I see that he is covered in like 
hundreds of oh my these God. huge beige spiders, right? Like the size of my hand. I'm not kidding. And they're crawling all over him and they're like, oh. and he's an arachnophobe as well. Oh so the stages couldn't be any better. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, the, the whole thing, the whole thing goes to shit. But at that point I was like, maybe, maybe this, like maybe I'm being followed by spiders. Like we're not even anywhere near uh, this house in Sydney anymore. And there's still like spiders everywhere, and like it's proper. I found one in the ocean, like you know, like they are everywhere. And so I was like, <laughs> and I kind of like because the relationship was so bad, I had low key lost my mind at the time. And I was doing like I'd sort of got into tarot a bit during the during the uh, the the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what it's called. Um, and was so I kind of had like magical thinking, like spooky thinking on the brain, even though I don't like expressly believe in this stuff i think of myself as quite a rational logical person mm-hmm. there's still there's just like this like other script running in my brain the whole time being like am i being followed by spiders if i yeah. was what would they be trying to tell me how would that work and and then i registered the show uh initially called spiders follow me because uh, i thought that was a funny title because it, it is funny and i knew the whole time that i sounded kind of uh crazy and that the whole thing was crazy but i'm like that's funny i'll write that uh and then by the time it came to write the show like i said i don't do well with deadlines and so Mm. it was Mm. like right before the thing and uh by that time i'd like regained my senses and realized that uh that i you know this was like a period of sort of low-key temporary madness where i thought that spiders were following me but it was it was too late i registered the show so i had to kind of write the thing and then that show turned into I've got 99 problems and here is an exhaustive list of them. Spoiler, like a couple of dozen of those problems are spiders. <laughs> <laughs> that's an incredible twist. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. That's so that's so that's the show. That's nice. that's the show. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, great. I would love to see it now. Uh, mm. I wanted to see it before, but now I really want to see it. Um, oh, well, I'll try and make the I'll try and make the Sydney thing happen. Yeah, yeah. cool, cool. And just in general, uh, where can people reach you? And if, do you want to reveal what the, the new podcast is going to be? Yeah, or? for sure. Yeah. It's going to be called Schmeitgeist, which nice. uh, is difficult to spell, but, you know, you'll get there. Yeah. Um, it's in theme with your name. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. It's all good. yeah. I have like the most ungoogleable <laughs> and un- ungoogleable name on Google podcast title. No one is going to hear this podcast. No, but it's going to be made by the ABC. So hopefully some people will find it that way. Uh, and that's coming out. It's slated for release in July. Um, so hopefully we, we get there. In the meantime, you can find me on Instagram. I'm the only Ange Lavoie-Pierre um, that I've found nice. uh, on Instagram. So that's, that's that. That makes that easy. Uh, and yeah, yeah. Watch, watch this space. Awesome. Oh yeah. And the show, the show. In <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> Jane and I doing jazz versus a bucket of blood at the Sydney Fringe Festival. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, when is that? And that's September. 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 Excellent. So, yeah. A awesome. few, few places you can catch me for the rest of 2022. Great. Well, I definitely hope to see you there. Sounds awesome. Thanks. All right. Thanks for being here, Ange. Thanks Luke. Appreciate it. Boom. Another podcast down. Nailing this shit. That was Ange. Hope you enjoyed. You can catch her on Instagram and stuff. I think she plugged herself already. So yeah, we'll be back soon. I think I'm going to do a solo episode, which is going to be a guided meditation. So if you're into that sort of thing, probably release that next. And got some more exciting guests in the pipeline. So please stay tuned and have a beautiful day.
I love you. Goodbye.